agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you? I'm I'm uh, fresh off the Ohio Federalist Society chapters conference, uh, and I am I am ready to go. I'm loaded for bear here today. <laughs> all so. right, then. Well, that's that that's good to, good to know. Kind of that contact high from all that conservative law stuff, yep. and you'll get a chance to talk about that certainly in, in the show today. I'm doing I'm doing well myself, though. I got to say, I'm a little intimidated. Jay, uh, the the mixer, the podcast mixer came that was made possible by uh, listener support, and uh, it is a it is an intimidating piece of equipment uh, and all, all sorts of capabilities. But I might actually have to read a manual before I okay. <laughs> start that thing. Are so. we going to be able to do like wacky morning show sound effects? Absolutely, that is okay. that is definitely something. I knew that that would be something That's you been a would particularly for me for <laughs> from the beginning. Yeah. So anyway, um, so today we do have an awful a lot to talk about, uh, all sorts of developments about January 6th committee and things surrounding that. Russia and Ukraine, of course, an anti-lynching law federal for the first time in, well, forever, actually. Uh, President Biden's first, like, real budget that he had a chance to put together, take some time on, and uh, also the Biden administration's response to the various anti-trans athlete uh, school laws in a number of states, and maybe even some uh, listener questions we should be able to get to. So there's an awful lot to do, and we're looking forward to getting right into it, which we will do in just one second. All right, Jay. So we open this week with, well, really multiple developments surrounding the events of January 6th. First, there was the release of multiple text messages between Ginny Thomas, who's, of course, the spouse of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And these texts were part of the over 9,000 pages of documents that Meadows handed over to the House January 6th committee. And when the text exchanges, a clearly angry and distraught Thomas, having bought into uh, sort of those baseless stolen election conspiracy theories, urges Meadows to help President Trump. In one text, she writes, well, help this great president stand firm, Mark, triple exclamation point. Well, that's his job. There right? you go. Yeah, yeah, You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice. The majority text like that all the time. You know, it's, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, Biden is and the left are attempting the greatest heist of our history. And of course, heist and history are capitalized um, in response. Meadows writes, and I love this one. This is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. I guess that's Trump. I don't know. Um, do do not grow Trump, weary Trump or Jesus. But we're not sure. Yes. <laughs> do not grow weary in well doing. The fight continues. I have staked my career on it. Well, at least my time in D.C. on it. So there you go. Uh, there was more where that came from. Now, this to me, uh, at least, is, is disturbing stuff. But what I find even more disturbing is that it doesn't really surprise me uh, at all. Um, you know, the concern here, uh, it's not just that prominent Republican figures seem to believe crazy things, but to me that, that Thomas in particular may have at least some influence over her husband, who, as you know, many of us pointed out, was the lone justice who would have granted Donald Trump's request to withhold White House documents from the January 6th committee. 
And earlier this week, a number of congressional Democrats sent a letter to Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas calling on Thomas to issue a written explanation for why he failed to recuse himself from the White House records request case. I also asked him to recuse himself from all future cases involving the events of January 6th and finally requested that Chief Justice Roberts, in their words, commit no later than April 28th to creating a binding code of conduct for the Supreme Court, the only court in the country not currently subject to a judicial code of ethics that includes, one, enforceable provisions to ensure the justices comply with this code, and two, a requirement that all justices issue written recusal decisions. So there are other January 6th stuff we'll get to, but I thought we'd start here, Jay. I wanted to get your take on, well, first off, the text between Meadows and Thomas, uh, Thomas's involvement more generally with January 6th and that Stop the Steal movement, and then finally, that recusal issue. Well, I guess I'll, I'll start by, uh, you should see the stuff my wife texts. Um, <laughs> no, I, I so I, I've I've actually you know gone back and forth on this in, in a couple, um, couple different ways, and and I think there's there you can make a legitimate argument about uh, whether Thomas should have recused himself on the records release case, um, and I've I've gone back and forth on that. I've come out uh, at the end uh, with the opinion that I think he did the correct thing in not recusing himself, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but going back to the texts, um, I, I'm not sure what, what you can say other than, uh, look, Jenny Thomas is a true believer. Uh, and I think she was misled. Uh, this was early in the, after the election. Um, and if, if you were to mount a defense for her, which I'm, I'm not necessarily doing, but I think that defense would go something like, look, there were these allegations out there. They had not been disproven at that point. Uh, emotions were running high, and uh, uh, she was just trying to make her voice heard uh, to uh, Mark Meadows. Um, uh, and so, look, I, I, I think the texts are just are just are nuts, right? I mean, it's it's uh, uh, crazy. But um, setting that aside, I'm not sure what else. Uh, that that shows, other than perhaps uh, Jenny Thomas is particularly gullible, um, uh, or you know his his uh, drank the Kool Aid, so to speak, of some of these other folks. I mean, she also recommended that they uh, really uh, stick with um, uh, the the legal team of uh, Sydney. Um, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, and which which uh, which they didn't, <laughs> which was yeah. in retrospect a good idea. Um, so I, I'm, I guess I, I think to some extent these are certainly embarrassing uh, for Ginny Thomas, embarrassing for Clarence Thomas, but I don't see that they have any political import or judicial import beyond that, right? Uh, beyond just as it's an embarrassment and you, you score some points off that. Let, let me ask you about that before you move on, because I, I uh, looked at the federal law on this, right? And it says that any justice judge or magistrate judge of the United States shall disqualify himself in any proceeding in which his impartiality might reasonable, reasonably be questioned. Now, the law then goes on to say that he shall also disqualify himself in the following circumstances. And then there's a list of things like prior direct involvement, potential for potential uh, for 
financial gain or loss or having a spouse or close relative. Now, we've talked a lot about legal construction. Now, my understanding in terms of how this is constructed is that when it says he shall also means that 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 first thing about reasonably be questioned is not a list of the instances under which a person's a person's impartiality might reasonably be questions, but it's also in these as opposed to just this thing. So, and so I think it's, it's certainly reasonable to say, well, should could, could an average person, knowing Jenny Thomas's involvement and her statements and all that, say that, well, she's married to Justice Thomas, and it seems reasonable to me that he might not be entirely impartial on this. Now, Justice Thomas uh, in the past has said, well, you know, I don't we don't talk about our work. And Ginny Thomas has said that. And of course, I don't really think that passes the you know the, the smell test. I I can't imagine uh, a spouse, you know, uh, a husband and wife who have any sort of closeness, not, you know, at least kind of casually talking about their work, especially when it involves, you know, this incredibly consequential presidential election. So I think that just that just feels false to me, which gives me even more reason to question his impartiality, because I think I'd actually be more okay with it if you know, the Thomas has said, well, listen, yeah, we talk about this stuff, but we, you know, we understand that we compartmentalize and so forth. And but that's not what they've said in the past. They just basically said, well, we don't talk about our jobs. And I just I just call BS on that. I don't know. I I, I disagree. I don't get, I don't get it. it's one thing to talk about your jobs and another to talk about uh, cases or, or sure. matters coming before the Supreme Court. I mean, I um, I could also see, I mean, you know, Clarence Thomas, you you get home from a long week of justicing and you, you know, take off the robe. You just want to sit and watch the game. And then the, the wife's nagging you about executive privilege. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, who hasn't been there and, you know, just kind of, you know, sort of, I don't know. I, I just have this, 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 this vision of, uh, you know, he, he walks home and, you know, can you believe I just texted Mark Meadows. I just, I'm <laughs> Clarence Thomas just shaking his head like, oh, geez. Um, but, but, but I mean, given this. given how worked up clearly Jenny Thomas is over this, it can't be the sort of thing where it just it, it strains credulity for me to think that she would just kind of erect this wall and just say nothing to her husband. Right. The Supreme Court justice about what she sees to be a colossal theft and a huge assault against yeah. our constitutional system. And she'd be like, yeah. well, you know, he's he's busy or, you know, yeah. he's had a hard week. Come on. Yeah, no, no, no. But but the my my question though is, does that disqualify him because his wife is is worked up about sure. the case? Sure. Well, well, I think it does in the sense. I mean, that- it is, can he not sit impartially? And I think I think I would look more at the test of, look, is this something that is there going to be some sort of financial gain or loss uh, for my family based on this? One, do we know that he? I don't know that we know that he knew. That was terribly parsed, but sure, I um, get you saying. You know uh, what was in those texts, or if those texts were sent, right? But but um, I mean, but but that's not what the law says. The law doesn't say you know he shall disqualify himself in a proceeding in which he might reasonably question his own impartiality. Right. It says in which you know his impartiality might reasonably question its by right, but you others. Can't, but you can't recuse if you don't know. Right, but uh, sure. What, 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 what I'm saying say. okay. is, I, I I don't know if it's been established that he knew that those texts were part of the records that would be turned over. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Right. So, but but at the very least, it seems to me reasonable that given what I I think 
people can potentially reasonably conclude about this, that at the very least, it shouldn't be just, uh, well, I've not even I've decided not to recuse myself, but nothing about that at all. I mean, you would think there would be something. And I think that's part of, you know, that's part of what the, the folks who are concerned about this feel like, well, yeah. if there's no kind of statement or explanation, if we're concerned about the legitimacy of the court, and I think we should be, especially in instances where there is some sort of, you know, potential for reasonably questioning uh, impartiality, then I would think justices who care about that what wouldn't just be silent, but would issue some sort of a statement kind of explaining their, their reasons. I mean, I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, yes and no. Okay. Um, and, and I want to, I, I want to walk through that because, sure. and actually this is, this is sort of a, a funny case is we actually had a, I had a case, uh, before the Ohio Supreme court, um, just last week. Um, and, uh, one justice, um, who I felt pretty strongly would, would rule in our favor, uh, recused himself. And we don't know why. I don't know why. No one knows why. Um, and it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I bet. Um, because people are saying, you know, because it, it, it was it was a 3-4 decision whether to take the case or not. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, I, I get that. Uh, I, I wish, uh, you know, that there was some... Um, some method to do that the, the downside you get into that um is you sort of then place judges in a position of making arguments in the public about what they should do or shouldn't do um so for example clarence thomas um uh issues a statement saying uh look uh i've looked at this uh it's possible there are uh texts from my wife that may be brought into this uh, or that, that may be released um, under this order. Uh, nevertheless, I am um, going to hear the case because I don't believe uh, that, uh, one, there's no uh, criminal liability uh, alleged against her uh, or him. There's no financial um, uh, financial thing at play. Uh, and again, it's also a little weird, because this, this type of case, right? Because usually in, if you have a case... Um, in federal court, all the parties have to sign these these um, declarations saying, "Okay, here's all our parent companies and subsidiaries, and that are publicly traded." So the judges know, um, you know, if they might have some kind of conflict or, or financial interest in something. But in this case, where it's a subpoena of of somebody else's records, and you don't necessarily know. Now, Clarence Thomas may well have known because she, you know, Ginny may have told him, "I'm, you know, I'm texting Mark Meadows right now. This is ridiculous." Um, uh, uh, Clarence, if you won't do anything about this, I will. Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm yeah. just. I'm just. And he I'm, said, just I'm doing my part, Jenny. I. I, I dissented in this case, you know. But what more can I do? Yeah. No. I. But. But. Um, mm. So. So. I. 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 I think there's there would be something uh, unseemly then about a justice um, defending himself or herself uh, in a public proceeding. On, on that, right? It, it, it takes away from the um, justices either recuse or, or don't recuse, um, and it's, it's sort of more appropriate than they leave that for leave it up for someone else to argue, um, which this week falls to me. 
Um, <laughs> so but but, but of course, is, isn't that the problem in this? I mean, in lower courts, of course, there's there's a way to make that but argument. You've got, and that's, a, you've got a higher court that can make those decisions. And which is why, you know, why the call for justice for Justice Roberts to put in place some sort of a enforceable code, which seems to me, I don't even know if that's possible, actually. I don't think it is. I think, I, w- I would think, in thinking about this, absent a constitutional amendment, there would really be no way that one could actually, you could have a code or a set of guidelines, but it really wouldn't be, I, I cannot imagine an enforcement can't, mechanism. Yes, you can't, the, the, the Constitution does not vest more power in the chief justice exactly. than in associate justices or, or give the chief justice uh, power to discipline or uh, remove a chief justice yeah, exactly. or, or, or an associate justice. And, and even even if it did, I mean, uh, just uh, Chief Justice Roberts has been pretty clear on this issue over time. There was back in 2011, the question of whether or not Robert or Thomas should have recused himself from the Obamacare case because Ginny Thomas was a big opponent, vocal opponent of that. And and, uh, Roberts wrote, I have complete confidence in the capability of my colleagues to determine when recusal is warranted. And then he he went on to say, the Supreme Court does not sit in judgment of one of its own members' decisions whether to recuse in the course of deciding a case. Indeed, if the Supreme Court reviewed those decisions, it would create an undesirable situation in which the court would affect the outcome of a case by selecting who among its members may participate. And that's that's a pretty good point. That's a, no. That's he said it much better than I could. Have. Yeah. Well, you know, he had some um, and time I think to he think goes on it. whether it's in that um, in that statement or another, but that on um, on the Supreme Court, you there is also there's there while there may be a duty to recuse, there is also a countervailing duty to to sit and hear cases, and and unlike um, you know, so so for example, in my um, uh, uh, Ohio Supreme Court case, what they do is if someone has a conflict or for some reason can't sit, they will designate someone from our Court of Appeals to sit by designation on that panel. Um, and you could just sub somebody in. Which you can't do but in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Supreme Court, you, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, some people would say, well, there is, in fact, a remedy, and that, of course, is impeachment and removal, and it's it does happen occasionally. There have been, uh, uh, I checked, there have been a total of 66 impeachment investigations for federal judges throughout the course of, of history. Fifteen federal judges have been impeached, and of those, uh, there were, I think, I believe it was eight were convicted and three resigned or, or something like that. But only one Supreme Court justice has ever been impeached, and that was way back in 1804, uh, Samuel Chase, though a little more recently, kind of, well, compared to 1804, uh, Abe Ford. And this is maybe a little more on point. He was appointed by President Johnson and he was an old buddy of President Johnson. And there was all kinds of allegations that he was way too close to Johnson, also some financial improprieties. And he ended up resigning uh, before he could actually get to get to that point. So it's not entirely unheard of, though. It's been, you know, over half a century before that was even a thing at the Supreme Court. Well, and I'd I'd say those impeachment cases also typically. uh, involve actual yeah. crimes, wrongdoing. Um, there was, I mean, there was the one federal judge from I want to say it was somewhere in Louisiana who had like the freezer full of cash. That he was yeah. you know getting yep. people and um, the Nixon case. And I'm forgetting this is not Richard Nixon. It's no, the judge, judge Nixon. Yeah. I'm forgetting what he did, but it's a big impeachment case. But they, they were actually it wasn't uh, simply this type of um, uh, making a decision or not recusing because you think your wife might have a, a 
a rooting interest in something like this. It was it was clear uh, uh, financial impropriety or 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 other things like that uh, that that yeah. uh, launched the impeachments. I mean, I I think you could make a strong argument that given. Given Justice Thomas's past decisions, that his decision to dissent, be the lone dissenter in that uh, executive privilege case, is not really out of line with his overall judicial history and philosophy. You know, right? That's, and I, that that brings me my, to my point of where I ended up on that he shouldn't recuse. Uh, and the reason is one: I think if he did recuse, that sets a precedent for. Uh, both right and left, right? If you've got some sort of issue with a a spouse, a relative, a close friend, whatever, uh, who's a strong advocate or who might have some uh, interest. And again, I'm, I'm not clear how you, what you call um, uh, Ginny Thomas's interest in this case, right? I mean, she's a third party whose communications might be intercepted by a subpoena. Um, uh, presumably, I mean, look as as strong as a as vocal an opponent as, as she is, and this is this is, would have been my solution. Um, uh, but you know, nobody asked me. Uh, is is that you know, Ginny Thomas should have disclosed that and gone public with it before this, right? And that takes the whole thing off the, the table, and she can say, "Damn right, I texted Mark Meadows. Uh, this is a heist." Um, Right. And I there's you know, I'm I'm not hiding anything and that's already public. And then that takes the whole issue um, out of uh, uh, Clarence Thomas's hands. But to my, my other point, so there's there's that uh, issue of if you set that precedent that uh, you can be recused or force recusal, you're going to have more and more. And this is what you're already seeing. Right. Of of any time uh, someone can say, well, they're close to this or they were close to this group. Um, uh, you've seen this pushed with um, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse's claims about, oh, it's the dark money, the dark money. Um, uh, so these judges shouldn't be able to sit on this case because uh, this organization helps support their confirmation. Um, and you you get into this this fight, as Robert said, over who gets to hear cases and who doesn't. Uh, and I think that would be very bad for the country. Uh, second. Uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, I have been a, I have been a keen observer of the court for years. He's actually been on the court for what thirty years now. Um, he, Clarence Thomas, knows where the votes are, right? Um, he knew he would be the lone dissenter in this. He knew that, uh, assuming assuming he knew that uh, Jenny had texted uh, Meadows, uh, he knew that those those records were going to get released. Um, so it's it's not as as if he he were somehow like I've I got my plan or I'm going to shut this whole thing down and I I know I can do it. Um, he he knew he would likely be uh, a dissenter if not the lone dissenter. Um, but he was making the point about the executive privilege. Now again, I disagree with him on that executive privilege point. Um, but that's part of his job, right? As associate justice, is to dissent on those kind of big questions when he he thinks. Uh, he thinks he's right, um, and and I think I think that's that's valuable. And I think if if you start down that recusal path, um, it's it just becomes more and more of a, a problem. Now, again, if you have if it was something like, um, again, the easy questions, right? I mean, look, I own I own a whole lot of stock in this company, um, therefore I have to recuse myself. Or there are a lot of uh, Elena Kagan ones where I worked on uh, this case. 
as an advocate um, um, in the solicitor's office, so I have to recuse myself. So well, um, let me ask you this. I not, see, not what, sorry, I see no. what you're saying on this, yeah. but, but does that basically mean then, uh, in, in your view, that that provision in the law about a, a judge should recuse uh, him or herself whenever their impartiality might reasonably question, that that basically we should just essentially ignore that because it's sort of a slippery slope? No. Well, then I guess I guess what I'm saying is here's what I'm trying to I, I'm not. Yeah, this no, isn't me being, asking, yeah. Yeah, being difficult for the sake of being difficult. I, I'm trying to understand then if what would be a condition under which that wouldn't meet any of those financial all those specific things that are listed in the law. That would also be a situation in which a judge would recuse because it sounds to me that the way you're sort of constructing this or seeing this is that really unless there is something like that you're saying that because it would just lead to all these situations that you described that really unless there's one of these specific things a judge probably shouldn't recuse him or herself in which case that that part of the legislation basically becomes a completely completely beside the point completely you know useless and, and that's kind of what i'm trying to struggle uh, understand well yes and no one um uh, first of all, consider that that what you're talking about is supposed to apply to all judges. It's sure. not just the Supreme Court. Yeah. yeah. And, and in most cases, that's th there's an easier fix for all these other judges. You can just you can just swap in another judge. Um, uh, but but if you remember, I, I made two points. Uh, and, and the second was it wasn't going to change the outcome anyway. So I that's that to me is, is something that and again, that's not in the rule, but. Um, if if Clarence Thomas uh, somehow had the power to say, "I'm going to I'm going to quash these subpoenas," um, uh, and my wife is involved, and I'm, then that's that, to me that's a little bit different um, than than look, I'm filing a a lone dissent on this, and I know the I know all of the stuff's going to come out. Assume, assuming I knew about it in the first place, which if I didn't know about it, then I'm off the hook. Um, but as, but assuming I did, I know it's all going to come out. Um, see that, I, and I see what you're, you're saying. Not, you're not, I, 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 there's no, there's no harm being done to the system. Uh, and I, I, you, therefore you say, listen, um, could somebody reasonably say that, uh, this is, this is improper. Um, I, I, I don't see it. And I, I, I get, there's a little cart before the horse there. Yeah. That's what but, I was going to point out is I, yeah. I see what you're saying. And I understand your argument. I, I, I end up disagreeing with it because while you're right that because he was the lone dissenter and he knew even if he didn't know he'd be the lone dissenter, maybe he'll, you know, good buddy Sam Alito would, would hang with him. He clearly knew there wasn't going to be a majority here and he wasn't going to make the difference in that sense. I mean, when you and I talked, we knew there wasn't going to be a majority yeah. there. Yeah. But but even so, and this kind of reminds me of kind of a, another January 6th thing, your, your argument, as I understood it previously, that, well, if you try an insurrection, basically, and it's just ridiculously impossible to pull off, that in some way you have less culpability than if you have a good chance of actually pulling it off. And I've never bought that argument. I understand what you're saying as a practical matter, but I don't think as a matter of law that, that that actually seems correct to me, but I understand the argument. I just disagree with it. Well, I, I'm, and I'm, I'd have to think back to what I was arguing there because... That know, was the argument where and I made the analogy. No, no, I, yeah, I, yeah, but was I arguing that it shouldn't be called an insurrection just in the... Because I know we did that discussion. Maybe it was it that. Legally a, an insurrection. 
Maybe, maybe um, it was. It might have been making the legal point, but uh, no, no, regardless, um, I, I think the, the the Democrat response, the overreach then is, okay, let's assume, even let's, let's assume, because like I said, I've gone back and forth on the recusal thing, and there are um, uh, different voices on the right that have come out differently on that. There, There is a, a school of thought that says Clarence Thomas just should have said, hey, I'm going to recuse. Um, and therefore, you know, uh, you know, say I'm there, I'm protecting the dignity of the court. Um, but what happens in his phase two, which is what we're seeing now, where the Democrats say, aha, Clarence Thomas, because your wife texted Mark Meadows, you have to recuse yourself in anything related to uh, January 6th, uh, which that I, I think is ludicrous. No, and like I said, I, I understand what you're saying, and I respect the, that that is actually, I, I tend to call you out on a lot of what I think are not so great slippery slope arguments. But this is a case where I think this is very much a slippery slope, which to me, then I would argue that that provision in in the law actually that, that I mentioned actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it is it, it creates the sort of problems that you pointed out and that, and that Chief Justice Roberts pointed out, at least for the Supreme Court. So it, it's there, but I, I don't know how useful it actually the is. The Supreme Court, I'm going to throw out my little pithy comment here, but it, it's it's the, the problem that we're dealing with the Supreme Court is they're not they're not final because they're right. They're right because, because they're, they're final. final. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's and that's just kind of the nature of yeah. it, right? So you, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another, well, at least seemed like it might be major development surrounding January 6th was the over seven hour gap that was reported in White House call logs on that day. And, and it became a major media story, certainly. But then uh, later on, we found, in fact, just just recently, we found right that that's there's maybe a little bit less to this story than uh, initially reported. And, of course, folks who with any sense of political history know about missing parts of tapes and all that with the Nixon White House and so forth. And so you can kind of see the, the parallel some folks would suggest. But, Jay, uh, there's a little bit less to this story, right, than, than turned out it met the eye. Yeah. Um, the CNN, uh, of all places, uh, even reported that the, the gap can be explained um, because the records they're looking at were records that are, are logged through the White House switchbo switchboard. Um, and as, as uh, CNN explains, and I'll take their word for it, uh, if you're if they're placing calls through from the president's residence in the White House, it automatically goes to the switchboard uh, uh, and is therefore logged and recorded. If uh, he's making calls from the Oval Office or other places in the White House from a landline there, uh, it does not necessarily go through the switchboard. Um, uh, likewise, uh, they reported that President Trump did have the habit of, of calling people or having other people call people on, on cell phones and they would talk. And he had, he had sort of this habit of, um, as a lot of, you know, CEOs do. So, Hey, get me, get me so-and-so. Right. Um, and, uh, whoever's in there would dial their, their phone and call the person. Um, and that, so those, those calls, uh, would not show up on that log. Um, now, the interesting thing that, that I learned from reading this is there there is a White House archivist uh, who is supposed to sort of keep track uh, at the end of the day of all the calls that were made. And uh, there's sort of report and they sort of follow the president around to some extent and, and, and you know, keep Would track be a of rough this. job. Yeah. Um, which, again, I, I, I find that like absolutely fascinating. Right. That there's there's somebody who's that's their job. Um, 
Uh, but it, it in the Trump White House and, and in other White Houses, it, it's one of these. Um, not everything always gets gets logged and archived, and it's sort of uh, an honor system and a, a remembering to report to the archivist uh, who you called and when. Um, uh, and and that the, the Trump record keeping system was this will come as a surprise. Uh, not not always the best. Um, so it, but it, it it looks very much that you know to the extent there's a there's a gap or there's missing records, it is is not some sort of uh, conspiracy to cover them up. It might have been they just might not have been uh, uh, recorded to, or, or or reported to the archivist. Um, I mean, but that, I don't think there's anyone denying that that Trump made phone calls because there were all these recipients on the other end of the phone calls. And I, I um, think the reason it, for skepticism, especially initially, is well during this particularly important period where there are allegations that the president may have, you know, held off on, and that that's I, I think reasonable people can say, well, hey, wait a second here, this is uh, potentially a big deal. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I I would say, you know. CNN was able to to find the the rest of the story and correct it. Um, if they had, if if the media had waited a day and done a little more reporting before rushing out with the story of uh, what is Trump hiding? Where's the missing missing seven hours? Um, we might have avoided this this whole situation and the our, our our federal government, the integrity of our federal government, and the integrity of our news media would would both have have come out looking better. Got it. Okay, so a little bit, uh, not something that we thought would initially be a story, but turns out uh, upon further review and reporting to not be as much of an issue, at least it seems at this point. But one thing that, well, maybe more of an issue, I don't know, is uh, involved a federal district court judge, uh, David O. Carter, who in a case this week concluded that, in his words, based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. Now, this came in a case involving whether or not communications between Trump and attorney John Eastman were covered by attorney-client privilege, which, as Trey and Ken discussed on the show a while back, has a crime-fraud exception, meaning that there's no privilege regarding communications regarding ongoing or future crimes. Sure. And this has naturally increased calls on the left for the Justice Department to investigate the former president. And that's a step that, to this point, hasn't been taken by Attorney General Merrick Garland. Um, Garland may be waiting for the January 6th committee to finish its work, which is that's expected to result in a recommendation for prosecution of Trump and other top administration officials. And the community and the committee says it hopes to have an interim report finished by this summer with a final report scheduled for the end of the year. And assuming that Republicans take control of the House in the November elections, the committee will almost certainly be disbanded in January 2023. Uh, so they would kind of have to file a report by the end of the year. So, Jay, what's your reaction to Judge Carter's conclusion, as well as a potential investigation of Donald Trump by the DOJ? Well, I'm I'm not uh, thrilled with it. Again, this is a probable cause determination, so that it's a a fairly low um, bar to get over. Um, And I I would suppose that you look at this and say, well, the, you err on the side of getting over the bar because uh, the defendant will have all sorts of uh, protections and abilities to defend later down the road. Um, uh, that said, what 
what bothers me a little bit about it, this, not a little bit, uh, bothers me a lot. Um, it goes sort of what, what uh, Ken and Trey talked about is this attorney client uh, privilege and, and that nature of it. Uh, and they're absolutely right. The attorney client privilege does not protect you in terms of ongoing crimes or future crimes. But I, I'm not sure that it's a future crime to seek legal advice and say, hey, what are my options here? Uh, and in terms of, of you know, avoiding avoiding this electoral outcome. Um, it, it may be uh, unpatriotic. It may be bad politics. It may be bad policy. It may be bad faith. Uh, it may be a whole lot of things. But uh, when you're asking your lawyers, what are my options? Um, that's that's necessarily, I, I would think, um, that's that's the right way to do it. Now, again, that, those attorneys can say, hey, well, well, look, we got this this goofy statute from 1872 and maybe we got a shot there. Um, uh, and that could be bad legal advice. I think it was. Uh, it could be um, espousing a, a uh, you know, false uh, facts, uh, false uh, claims before a, a court. Um, and again, those there's those things have their own sanctions that come with them. Um, uh, but they're not criminal. And I guess that's that's what troubles me a little bit is this this seems to be sliding into criminal penalties for getting legal advice. Yeah. Well, I. Yeah. And look, look, assuming unless the um, if, if the legal advice is we should incite a mob to storm the Capitol and kill Mike Pence. Yeah. Then no, that that would that would be bad advice. And it'd also be not privileged. Right. Okay. But so, if, if your claim is, I think we can make a case that Mike Pence can reject these, uh, reject these these electors, uh, and then it would go to the the uh, the House of Representatives, and it would proceed from there. Um, again, that that may be maybe a, a very dumb position, terrible legal advice, but I, it it's not it's not criminal. Right. Well, any I, any, any more so than. Um, you know, so many other, you know, Al Gore telling Al Gore, look, I think you can challenge these butterfly ballots. Yeah. Well, I, and I think there are two things here, right, that the, the judge is suggesting that there was an attempt to obstruct the count and not to sort of violate the law. And I mean, that uh, to what extent are you inciting a riot or that? And that's a that's a debatable thing. And as you point out, that the the standard of proof is much lower in these in these uh, cases than it is in if there were like a, a criminal trial or something like right. that. Well, this is the, just the preliminary step, yeah. right? This is this is um, the equivalent sort of, of of applying for a search warrant. Yeah. So the the standards a lot lower. Yeah. yeah. But but I think you know certainly given well I, it seems likely to me very likely right that the January sixth committee is going to suggest that there are specific crimes that Donald Trump committed in which case since they they're not they don't have the authority to in, the, in, indict or right uh, try right. that that would have to go to the department of justice and i mean w what do you think about that if they make specific claims is that something that the uh, uh, the department of justice should investigate or should they just say well uh, no we don't do that well it depends on the, the claims right um and depends on the proof uh as as a matter of policy if i'm the department of justice uh, if I'm Joe Biden, I would be extremely, extremely hesitant uh, to seek to indict uh, a, a former president um, absent some some really significant proof. Uh, and and I, to me, it doesn't look like they, they have that right now. Maybe they maybe they will later. 
Um, but, you know, if you remember, there was the, the chance of, of lock her up, uh, you know, when, when Trump was running against Hillary and um, everyone was aghast at, at uh, how terrible that was. And, and Trump even said, even backed off that, said, no, no, we're going to beat her in the election. Um, and he didn't try to lock her up. Um, so this this would be it would be telling, I guess. And I, I guess my my concern is, you know, do we start do we start getting into, you know, thought crimes, right? Again, inciting a riot or planning to overthrow the government is uh, is obviously when, uh, when pol- yeah when politicians on both sides for centuries have said, well, we have to fight like hell. Well, yeah. that doesn't. Yeah, that's yeah. And I, I think there's something to it. Now, there are other potential crimes that are being investigated by the Department of Justice, including uh, the look, they're looking into false, false statements or false uh, filings by those fake electors, right? Because that was, of course, all part of, uh, we talked about Eastman, all part of Eastman's suggestion that what you do is you, in it was seven states, you file these fake electors and you find some usually party officials, party chairs, state party chairs say, yes, these are the, in fact, real electors. And then Mike Pence says, well, we have competing electors and we're going to not appoint these electors because there's a there's a problem with them. And so of the electors that we have, oh, look at this. Donald Trump has more of the rightfully appointed electors. So he is president. And that, of course, was a crazy, completely wrong, unconstitutional scheme that didn't happen. But even though it didn't, the argument is that, well, these people, these electors and the people who signed off on it, they were in effect committing a crime by filing this this false claim, basically. And I'm wondering, what, what do you think about those prosecutions or at least those investigations? Yeah, look, if if you want to investigate it, uh, I think that's fine in terms of filing a false claim. Um, but my sense is it has to be knowingly false. Uh, there, there may well have been people who really believed, uh, like Jenny, uh, Jenny Thomas, that the election was stolen, that something had to be done, um, uh, and they were they were asked to, you know. Now, if if someone is making actual false statements about witnessing something that didn't happen, then yeah, uh, that's that's a problem. And reporting it to federal authorities, absolutely, they uh, that should be investigated and prosecuted. Um, if it's someone who signs up to become an elector based on the uh, listen, from what I'm hearing, I think Trump was was robbed, and and I, uh, you know, submit my name as as uh, an elector on his behalf. Um, again, that that may be a bad plan, um, but I, I I don't see the criminality unless there's uh, a knowing. Um, yeah. Misstatement to federal authorities. The old George Cassandra line, you know, it's not a it's lie not if exactly, you believe it. Yes. You know, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I, that, that to me, that's the problem is you get that intersection of sort of crazy and criminal and kind of it's hard to sort of judge. And especially given the fact that I think you're right, that setting this sort of precedent of of potentially criminalizing uh, election activity, even if it is kind of right up to the line, that that makes me a little uncomfortable too. And so, while, while I certainly think that Donald Trump has played fast and loose and pushed right up against a lot of lines, I, I certainly would be hesitant to if I were Merrick Garland. And I think he's taken the right approach here because he has seemed very hesitant. I think to really politicize this uh, to the extent that I think a lot of folks on the uh, more progressive left are are, are calling for. 
he would have made a fantastic Supreme Court justice. Too bad no one ever nominated. Oh, wait a second, actually. Um, anyway, okay. Oh, I, I could make a crack about, look, it's a lot easier to go after uh, parents uh, yelling at school boards uh, than it is a, a former president. But, yeah, well, there's, there's, yeah. but I won't. Oh, Thank you, Jay. <laughs> okay. Um, let's move on to something entirely different here. Uh, Russia and Ukraine. We haven't talked about Russia and Ukraine yet. You know, uh, over the last week, well, it's been another eventful week, as as unfortunately, I guess, right? Uh, in the face of significant setbacks, Russia now seems to be kind of changing its focus, attempting to argue that, well, this is, everything's going according to plan. This was, in fact, the plan. And, uh, you know, reality, it seems like, is not bending to uh, Vladimir Putin's will. And Russia has also insisted that countries pay for Russian gas in rubles, and that's a demand that's been refused by European countries to this point, though there's this big loophole that would allow countries to pay for Russian energy in their own currency and then have an intermediary Russian bank convert the money into rubles so everyone's happy, basically. But uh, while while speaking in Poland last Saturday, actually, President Biden uh, made the comment, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Some people loved it. Other people thought really bad thing to say. And of course, the White House quickly attempted to walk back the remark, claiming it was a statement of the president's personal moral outrage and not actually a call for regime change in Russia. And then finally, more consequentially, uh, President Biden this week announced that the United States would be releasing one million barrels per day for the next six months from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in an attempt to lower gas prices. And this represents the largest. Do you think that's more consequential? I think slightly. Yeah, just slightly. All right. We'll talk about that. But this is the largest ever drawdown from the SPR, and the total amount is around 586 million barrels in various caverns in Louisiana and Texas. Biden also called on penalties for energy companies that hold federal drilling leases but opt to not use them to produce energy. So, yeah, let's let's talk first about, Jay, the uh, the comment that Biden made in Poland. And so what did you I mean, because, uh, you know, certainly opinion even on the right was kind of split on this. Some people saying, yeah, damn right. And other folks saying, wow, that was a really big mistake that he said that. What do you think? So I, I, I'm sort of of the I am a believer in moral clarity, right? Um, so to some extent, if that was his intent, I, I think that's that's good. But you got to be strategic about it. I mean, again, people yelled and screamed of like, oh, my God, when Reagan called the Soviet Empire the, or Soviet Union the an evil empire. And, um, uh, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, that those were these these off-script, belligerent uh, sort of things that are going to start a war. Um, but the different what, difference was that was actually Reagan's policy. That was actually the plan. Um, and we we weren't shy about that. Uh, we that, that was what we were doing. Um, so I, it's one thing. If, if, we want to, if we want to have a policy of regime change in Russia, which I think we should, um uh then then by all means uh let's do that but let's do it strategically and not just sort of an off the cuff um this man can't remain in power or you you have someone else say it right um uh and and that's how you you, you play the game and it's not when these you have this you know high high tension um uh situation where 
there were literally now it's it's people are less concerned than they were a couple weeks ago that oh my gosh it's World War Three and nuclear weapons and on all this sort of thing. Um, uh, it it seemed to be just just out of the blue, right? And then you have the the the, the, the other the other problem with it is then when the White House walks it back right away. Um, you get this this sense of who's really in charge, and that's not helpful um, for for any kind of foreign policy uh, situation, either for for Russia or for our allies, uh, if they don't know who's really speaking for the administration, um, or that, that that the administration doesn't trust the president to to speak for speak for it. Uh, so I I think that those things are, are on balance. Uh, uh, it, it was it was not a, a, a wise statement to make. And, and again, if you want to make regime change uh, our policy, um, we can do it. But but you don't just do it in an off the cuff sort of way and then walk it back. And then 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 Biden also can kind of double down and not walking it back. Right. <laughs> sort of it's it, it's this weird sort of like, listen, no, I, um, it's just my personal belief that uh, he can't remain in power. Um, uh, but what I'm, you know, that's just, that's just me talking, uh, not the president of the United right, States. Sure. No, I, I, and I, I think you, when you're the president, you, you can't have it both ways. I mean, um, if you're like us and you're on a, you know, doing a podcast on Saturday mornings, I can absolutely say Vladimir Putin should be removed from power. And, uh, that, that is, uh, that is my, uh, that is my stance on the matter. Um, but it's something quite different when the president of the United States says it in a public speech. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. It was something that the president should not have said in, in a public speech. Certainly, it seems to me another in a long line of Biden gaffes. Uh, and again, it's one of those reading the stage directions out loud. Yeah, and so, but but I I would disagree with you that uh, I do not think the the policy, at least the stated policy of the United States government, should be regime change in Russia. I think that leads us down a very dangerous road. I think it makes sense to have a policy of regime change in situations in which we have some sort of realistic potential to change that regime without uh, without side effects, consequences that would be so incredibly negative. So, you know, you can maybe make that case for some other uh, states. Uh, maybe, I don't know that I would, but when it comes to Russia, I would say that that's a very dangerous public policy to have. And I don't know that that really makes a whole lot of a whole lot of sense strategically, actually. So, well, I mean, fair enough. Um, and again, my my position. Let, let's put it this way: Don't you think that that is our policy, though? No, I don't think it's our policy. It's a, it like would be it, no. I think I th I'll make a distinction. It is our preference. Certainly, right. we would be happy if Vladimir Putin were no longer in power. But in terms of a policy, right. to All me, right, a I policy. Yeah. So, so yeah, I would say that it is the preference of the United States that uh, Russia be democratic and not be ruled by a corrupt, evil, uh, mass murdering, genocidal uh, dictator. Yeah, absolutely, our that's, preference. That's, that's a fair distinction. Okay, so yeah. then we kind of actually we kind of probably agree on this. That that's our preference, but we're not going to attempt to put that preference into effect through any sort of direct means, basically. We're not going to be, say, like trying to poison Putin when he, you know, when he comes outside of Russia, like Putin would do, apparently for pretty much anyone who he when right, he gets the urge. Yeah. yeah, exactly, <laughs> sort of thing. So, okay, so we don't really disagree on that. Um, what about the release of the oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? I wonder if we disagree on this. What did you think about that? Um, yes and no. I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, look. So often, um, presidents use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. To lower gas prices just before an election, um, which, which is not what it's meant for. 
But in this case, I, this is actually a strategic use um, in, a, in a strategic situation. So uh, I'm not I'm not opposed to it because I think this is the time, kind of time that you need to do it. Um, people have pointed out, though, that the release that he's proposing, uh, we don't even necessarily have the capacity to release all that as quickly as he would want uh, because we don't have the, the pumping capacity and refining capacity, I guess. Uh, so it's going to take some time for that to happen. So I, I don't know that there's going to be an immediate drop in gas prices. I, I think there's going to be sort of that that um, looking at okay, there's something coming uh, down in the future in the uh, in the pipeline, so to speak. Um, uh, but uh, it's does it does it move the needle substantially on on gas prices? I don't think it does. Um, uh, but if we're going to, let's put it this way, if it is a strategic petroleum reserve, uh, now would be the time. Yeah. If you're going to use it, I mean, that's the whole point of having yeah. it. Right. And, and I think anyone who it's thinks for these kind of situations, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, clearly the administration felt the need to do something right. Uh, yeah. uh, and this is something to do, even if it's not going to have a whole lot of an effect. And, but, but I think this idea, uh, the larger problem, it seems to me and to a lot of folks is that it doesn't address the fundamentals. And is that, you know, us energy uh, companies can't just, flick a switch and produce more energy, right? It's, it's a long-term, it's an expensive process in a global market that's oftentimes very volatile also with, and, you know, on the left, we should be honest with it, about this, an administration that's working or we hope is working hard to decrease demand for fossil fuels in the medium to long term. So put yourself in the position of a U.S. energy company and the president. Yeah, well, there you go. So, I mean, <laughs> the, the president's saying, damn it, drill more. You're like, well, why would we invest in all this when it seems like the the larger environment is really negative toward right. this sort of thing? And so well, when you just told us uh, with the first day you came into office, you're not renewing all these leases and you're sure. not going to grant leases. Le these leases on federal lands and all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm okay with this because I think I recognize that a transition from fossil fuels to more climate friendly alternatives, this was never going to be a smooth transition unless I think it happened so gradually that in the view of a lot of folks, including I would say the majority of climate scientists, that transition would be too slow to prevent the sort of environmental climate concerns that a lot of people have. I mean, it's that that's just inevitable. And of course, when you when you factor in this, you know, Russia being such a huge energy producer, that that's going to make it even even more difficult. But the fundamentals, this, this doesn't change the fundamentals. And the administration is trying to move away from fossil fuels much more so than the Trump administration, certainly, or any Republican administration. I think that's a good thing, but that creates a short-term problem for the Biden administration right now. Well, I, I, I think it's more a long-term problem, right? Um, because... I see what you're as, saying, sure. As you yeah. said, yeah, this, this it's not like flipping a switch. And a lot of these companies will likely say, listen, why, why on earth, uh, Joe Biden, should we bail you out now um, after, you know, you're, you essentially accused us of destroying the world and, and tried to shut off everything. And, you know, you, you had a, a Federal Reserve nominee um, who was, was you know, threatening and thought it were well, I'm threatening, but thought it, was, thought it would be a good idea to use the power of the Federal Reserve to, to uh, uh direct money away from energy companies, uh, away from this kind of investment. And now, literally, uh, two weeks later, 
uh, you're demanding that we go and, and drill uh, to save your bacon from from high gas prices. Um, you can you can see why energy company executives yeah. uh, might say, you know, look, Joe, we've we've had enough because because what will happen, right, is as soon as they do this and gas prices come back down is. Biden will step right back up and say, we got to get rid of fossil fuels. These people are enemies of, of, uh, of the world and, and, uh, horrible, terrible people. And, um, they ought to be sanctioned and their, you know, uh, ability to, to bank and, and, uh, get loans and all that should be curtailed and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think he's right about that. I mean, not that they're evil people, but those other things. But again, that that creates a that that creates an understandable incentive for these companies to not invest a whole lot of money in in, in drilling, certainly, and increasing capacity. And you yeah. know, so yeah. yeah, I I think we we both agree about the the rational, reasonable reaction of the of the oil companies. What we disagree on is whether or not sort of the underlying policy of the president is is a good one. And we of course we. We've talked about that, that disagreement a number of times. Well, let, let me just throw in one more thing on that. And, and that is, if, if, you, if there were to be an argument of the reasonable ramp down, right, that we recognize, listen, we need fossil fuels uh, to keep us going in the transition in at least the 20 to 50 year horizon. Um. Uh, but, you know, this is going to be part of a larger, longer transition to um, renewables, which is something else you, you had pointed out one of the pieces you sent me this week, although a lot depends on things like rare earth elements yeah. that are are by definition rare. Um, uh, but uh, the Chinese of all people have them. Um, so, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're maybe substituting one problem for another there, but... Um, but the the political incentive uh, for for Biden and for Democrats is not to say, um, you know, again, this is this this go I, this is universal to all sides, right? Nobody takes the street and says, you know, what do we want? You know, incremental change. Yeah. When do we want it? <laughs> yeah. You know, over the next ten years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the the instead the demand is, you know, we need to do something right now because this is apocalyptic. Uh, if we don't pass this bill, the the world will end in ten years, and the seas will rise, and um, you know Capitol uh, Hill will be underwater. Um, that was what a, a prediction made in in 1988. Um, uh, it's still dry, but uh, you know, so so that's uh, you know, I, I think that's that's the problem is is these companies know that the energy companies uh, by their nature. Uh, uh, have to think long term, right? Um, they have to think on that twenty fifty year horizon because they look at the investment they they're going to make, how long it's going to take, the lifetime of a well, all those sorts of things. Um, whereas uh, politicians, and particularly those on the left, look at the next press release. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so those two time frames definitely can create some, you know, real issues because it's not like, well, you're, you're, you're Exxon and you get a, you get a federal oil lease and then a week later you're, you're sinking a, you're sinking a well. I mean, that's not, right. not how it works right. it's at all. It's going to take years. And then, and then the idea is also the, the time for you to recover that investment. Uh, you're not going to recover that the first week. It, it's going to be over, you know, these, these leases are, you know, 20, 30 year and, and, you know, you factor in, all the the variants uh, variables uh, in the the economy, the global economy, that are going to happen during that time. 
Um, and, and you don't know how much Venezuela or uh, Iran yeah. or Russia is going to be pumping or the OPEC plus countries, you right. know, and or so, if there's going to be another pandemic, right? Then that's going to yeah. knock out demand for worldwide for a year. Um, yeah. So uh, my my point is, I, I would ask uh, uh, all of our listeners on the left and uh, Mike, you included. <laughs> but but let's look at this realistic. If you want to convert to renewables, great. Um, but the calls of doing so immediately are both unrealistic and and unhelpful. So. Yeah, I I would say with you know with all due uh, with all due speed, but that uh, isn't certainly immediately. And even then, I think there are just going to be inevitable problems. You know, and I I often don't find myself agreeing with Joe Manchin, but uh, you know he made that point I think a few weeks ago, saying like, well, you know, right now we're dependent on these countries for what have you, but what if uh, you know we're dependent on other countries for battery parts or things. You know, yeah. lithium, and then that's you know these are important concerns that need to be. We have a strategic petroleum reserve, but do we have a strategic rare earth metals reserve? Well, not not, not so much really. And these are the sort of things that take time to kind of work out and so forth. And of course, it's frustrating to a lot of folks like me on the left because we feel like these are decisions that have been put off by administration after administration, Congress after Congress, and we kind of have to rush these things if a lot of the concerns of the climate scientists will will come to pass. And as you point out, and you enjoy pointing out, I know there have been some crazy concerns way out there, right? But of course, then there's that tail risk of, well, what happens if the consensus actually is right on these things? Well, we're, we're, we're pretty... Uh, well, we're pretty screwed then, you know. And so that's it. You know, I have said before on this issue, you are far more optimistic uh, than I am on this one. So, all right. Well, that brings us to the end of our, uh, our regular uh, ad-free or sorry, ad-supported segment. And if you are a Politics Guy supporters, you will be getting the rest of the show in just a minute here. We're going to be talking about the Emmett Till anti-lynching law, President Biden's budget, the Biden administration's response to those anti-trans laws, and also some listener questions, maybe all of that in just a minute. If you're not a supporter, just a quick reminder, full episodes, they're ad-free, they run around two hours, they're available to our Patreon supporters. And also, if you're uh, not in a position to financially support the podcast at this point, just send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will get you set up there. But if you can't become a supporter, we would really appreciate it. It helps us out a lot. It's patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us through Venmo or at politicsguys, as well as through PayPal. And all the support links are in the show notes and at politicsguys.com slash support. And whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate if you could subscribe rate the show on whatever podcast app you're using and also leave a review and share episodes on social media. Thanks so much.